Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. Great to have you here. If you come here via YouTube and want to know more about what we do, as always, head over to officehours.global, our primary web portal, for more information and links about the show. Uh, in our second hour today, Matt Simiglia from Altheon IO is our second hour guest. Matt was with us back in March, and he'll update us on their content delivery, markup, comment, and management system, and also talk about development. He's an, a developer who does a lot of work in this space. Um, the Altheon IO process now supports uh, something that Alex is very fond of, which is USDZ. And he can also address, um, if anybody is interested in chatting with him about it, how the team has integrated AI into the project, uh, product anyway. So let's dive in. I'm goofy this morning. Mitch, save me. <laughs> let's get into our yeah, regular when comes, questions. When it comes to goofy, it's time to come to me. Thank you, Bill. Uh, John Nichols <laughs> is in here first from Concord, California. I've got a set of six HDMI monitors that don't support 1080p uh, P30. Sorry, I'm looking for a price-conscious option to upscale to 1080p60. I have a few decimators, but would rather save them. Are there any of you used worth mentioning? Chris Fenwick, help us out here. John, you're not wrong. You should save the decimators as a patch. I think uh, Alex has said this before in the in the past. Uh, you don't want to build a system from the ground up that relies on something like that as you know your your everyday uh, signal path. Um, I recently have, um, recently like in the last pandemic, uh, learned the beauty of some of these low cost Dell monitors. Um, I'm not 100% sure about the 60, the, the 1080p 60, but I don't normally buy 1080 monitors. I typically as an editor only use four and 5k monitors but when I started building up you know some of this uh, streaming stuff uh, 1080 seemed to be okay what I look for is uh, probably under 300 bucks they look fine you know I'm not gonna grade a Hollywood movie on it um, nobody's gonna ask me to do that anyway uh, and I also want to make sure that it's visa mount and then you just build a wall of them any way you want that, that's what I would do uh, Mitch Hill. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel your pain. Um, a 1080 monitor usually comes in a form of a 24-inch monitor. I've got a pair of uh, um, HP uh, 24 inches, and they're right at 1080. It's always nice to be able to lock in on a very specific uh, resolution because everything is so sharp and clean. Um, I think a bunch of other folks on the uh, panel use Dell, another, uh, another one. So, I, I agree with what Chris was saying that uh, save those decimators because once you go through all those conversions, it's you're always wondering whether that conversion process has added some other garbage to the uh, video or even delay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Hey, Mitch, do Absolutely. you find that the HPs match among themselves? How many do you own? One, two, three, four, five, Can't six. The, uh, the Dream Colors, definitely, and they're very pricey. Uh, the other ones, yeah, they're okay. I've got two of the same right here. Yeah, I, and, uh, and literally, I would say mine are probably, I think, under 300 bucks. I'll put, a, I'll put a link in the show chat. And I've gone to using a lot of these IPS monitors from, uh, I get them off Amazon. They're from a company called Kagoda. Let me see if I can pop up. There we go. Uh, these guys, they're general purpose monitors. They're 16 by 9. They're driven by USB-C or HDMI. And uh, I've been really surprisingly pleased with them. They're only 99 bucks a piece. They're very thin. They're light. They're bus powered. So you plug in a... Uh, 
a USB-C cable or something like that. And if there's power on the thing, they'll run based on that. Uh, the picture is very pleasing. I use them for both my monitor panel in the morning here, and I have a one oriented vertically to the right of my screen because I do a lot of work with copy. Uh, then during the day, I use it for my panel view. And then on the left side, I have another one that I can use for alternate sources. And so my laptop drives those two plus the output bus that goes to my big overhead screen. And, and so they've just been very dependable and very good. So I think if you're not looking for color accuracy, which these are not, I mean, they're fine. They look great, but I wouldn't trust them to grade something on. I think they're, they're very useful. So monitors are getting less expensive and, and pretty, pretty flexible out there. Let's go on to the next question. Next one in from Rick Combs in Columbia, Tennessee, looking for an external mic to use on an iPhone for phone calls. I've tried a few, but they seem to only work for video recording, but not for phone calls. This is for a conference room table. Jeffrey Powers will help us out. Jeffrey? Well, there's several different options that you can do. Uh, you could actually just get like a, a Blue Yeti and put it on in the middle and then uh, have an adapter to your, uh, to your phone that you just plug in right there. Another one is just uh, the iRigs from IK Multimedia. You uh, you can you just basically get the uh, the cable that goes from here to iPhone, and it also will go to Android if you uh, with the right cable, of course, and uh, and and attach it there. That way, you can put in almost any mic, uh, including anything that needs phantom power in this case, uh, and uh, run from there. Yeah, and, and Jeffrey, are you using that in conjunction with an iPhone or something like that to bring in the phone calls? Or are you having them dial directly into the computer? Well, you can do a, you can set them up for a computer. You can set them up for a phone. You can set them up for anything. Yeah, I was just wondering how you were, how are you getting the the telco pots line, Plano telephone service, into the rig? Oh, so he wants to he wants to go in. Okay. Yeah, I he's would, looking I to just, record yeah. phone calls. What we used to have to do with a particular piece of equipment called a phone patch that, you know, and it was complicated back in the old days. Now, any iPhone will will bring in a phone signal. So I'm wondering if there's any software on an iPhone to be able to patch that call coming in to yeah. a recording system for somebody. That may the, be the a way little I bit of a sticking it, point. The way I used to do it was through Skype. And uh, hmm. Skype's still around. So there you go. One of the services that allows someone to come in and get a voice call. There, that that does make some sense. All right. Well, hopefully, Rick, that helps you. Let's move on to the next question from Alton Christensen in New York, New York. The Sphere lights up Las Vegas skyline. There's a link to it there. What resolution do you think it is? Six gazillion by seventy-seven gazillion. There's a lot of LED panels in that that thing, Mitchell. Talk to us about it, if you know. I, I was watching it, and I was amazed. Now, as an After Effects guy, I was thinking, how do you map that um, uh, your images? Because they've got one that's an eyeball that's really spooky. The eyeball's looking up and down. It's like somebody's really watching you. But they did a lot of stuff, and I'm wondering what kind of software uh, that they would use to uh, to map that. Because you can't deal with flat images. It has to be wrapped around a sphere. Yeah. By the way, boy. it's sphere, not spear. That's <laughs> Chris Fenwick. Uh, I was going to say at least 640 by 480, but according to the <laughs> Google, uh, it's 16K resolution. 16K. So each yeah. of those gazillion panels has to this, be able th to resolve 16K. This is 16K. an article. I mean, this is 
we are now doing verbal Google here. So you guys ask us a question. We're going to type it into our gazoogles, and then we'll read to you what we find. So go ahead. Uh, just teasing. Uh, now with AI. Okay. Yeah. Right. Now. Now with AI. Uh, so yeah, according to uh, the Googleizer, it's uh, the Sphere's interior will be equipped with a 16K resolution wraparound. Oh, you know what? That's the inside screen. So I'm going to go Google a little more deeper. Oh, but, you don't get to see the 16K unless you're inside, unless you have a ticket. Well, that, the that outside sense. screen, yeah. Uh, uh, MGM Sphere outside resolution. I'm going to type in outside. This is compelling video entertainment. <laughs> We're having fun though. I understand that they have a mini sphere somewhere else. I can't. Somebody was talking about that on the show that they use for programming what's going to go on the big sphere. That would be the magic eight ball. Bill. One point two. <laughs> they have one in the Hilton Hotel. It's one point two megapixels. No, no, no. I thought That's there was there was something right, in downtown, like some city not too far from Vegas, and maybe in the Bay Area. Actually, they... there's. You're right, Bill. There is another sphere. It's in Pahrumpf. Pahrump, Nevada. Ah, interesting. Yeah. yeah it's, All right. It's pretty, yeah, they they have it at the local, um, I don't know. I have We're talking a lot of this stuff about what's happening at the Sphere in Las Vegas. And we have John Prado here who lives in Las Vegas and may have read or heard or intuited more about this than we have. So, John, what do you say? I'm just reading this off the screen. It says 19,000 by 13,500. Okay. So there you go. We haven't seen resolution numbers like that before. And I do not want to try to edit the video coming from that. I, you know, I would imagine the resolution independent software, Final Cut is among that, but I'm sure maybe Premiere and maybe Avid, it's, who knows? It's actually not that hard. That's, a, that's yeah. even not, not that big of a screen. I've edited videos with more pixels than that. Interesting. The trick, the trick is how do, like Mitch said, how do you monitor it? So yeah. there have been, so some of the stuff that I'll edit, I edit in um, a giant timeline and then we ha it has to be cut up between multiple screens. So yeah. then what I usually do is I'll make a, a preview for clients and I'll, I'll, uh, you know, a two and a half D in After Effects and I'll lay out the screens in the orientation they are in the auditorium. And sometimes they have, you know, uh, you know, uh, technical drawings that explain how the, all that's going to be, how high is it off the floor and whatnot. And then I map what I've edited into those screens. And sometimes I'll even animate my camera through the scene to show a producer what they're, what they've, you know, directed me to do. The question is, how do you do that with the sphere? And I'm sure like it's out of my realm, but I'm sure with, you know, Unreal or whatever, you know, you can figure out a way to do that where you take your your stuff and you, you know, you unfurl it. With it. It's a Mercator projection, isn't it? Something right. like that. Mitch, you had another thought? And like Chris said, it's like I don't think you can do it on a regular timeline. You have to distort it so you see what moves make sense and look right. Or even if it's type, the type has to be bent. So if you're editing, it's probably going to be really weirdly uh, distorted in order to be mapped onto a sphere. The other thing I would do is maybe put it into a plugin like Spherize inside of After Effects and try to uh, create a, a pre-comp with that in it so you can at least instantly see what the effect is. But I have a feeling it's something weird. Well, it's, it's kind of like when you're editing 360 video, 
if you if you look at the canvas without the 360 plugin turned on, it yeah, it's completely weird. But but that's different because you're inside the sphere as opposed to the outside of the sphere. I have to say that the most uh, pixels I've ever seen at Comic Con one year, they were doing in Hall H, which is the huge Comic Con hall. Um, Supernatural had been running the TV show, had been running for like 10 years. They had lots and lots of money. So they did this thing. I don't know if you can see it. This is a panorama shot. There were more screens, more distance. They wrapped half the entire hall with these gigantic screens. And so, uh, yeah, it was a huge array. I'm trying to see if there's one. That's the panel that came after it. Probably... One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine huge screens uh, and different and coordinated content on each. So to what um, Chris was talking about, you have to have a system where you can stitch these together. I mean, work on the whole thing so you understand what the whole program is like, even though there's no way you can do that. Uh, I do that stuff all the time, Bill. So it, it's not that big a lift is what you're telling us. Cool. No, no for, for a bunch of 16 by 9 you know, two to one. Uh, uh, I did a demo. Oh, it was on. Um, so the Ripple guys, Mark and Steve, they do a mm -hmm. show, uh, uh, like a once a month show where they talk to various people. They they asked me to be on it, and in that episode, I talk. I showed them a timeline where um, it was nine screens across the front of the hall. And they varied between, some of them were 16 by 9 screens, some of them were 2 to 1 screens, some of them were 1 by 1, and various heights and whatnot and such. And so in Final Cut, I create a sub-comp for each one of the screens, and then I make a master comp, okay? Ah, and bring in those sub-comps. And the master comp has, yeah. has the things. Then what you do is you create what I call an overlay channel, which is the size of the master comp, and it allows me to animate something across all nine screens. And then you very carefully position that overlay comp inside each of the individual comps. In this particular deliverable, they asked for nine separate files that they would play back in sync, some magic backstage, I don't know what they use. Uh, but in the editorial process, you need to be able to see all nine of them simultaneously so that you can decide if the video sucks or not, right? So, so for the edit process, I am editing in a, a massive comp that I then compress down and let the clients preview on, you know, their laptops because that's all they ever use. And then, um, but it, but in one fell swoop, I can select the nine subcomps and export them all individually, and deliver them backstage. That's the so way. It's, it. Yeah. All right. Well, now you probably know as much as you ever. But wanted doing it to know in a sphere <laughs> would yeah, be yeah. super interesting. I, I, I agree, and I think uh, to Jeffrey's original point that you know, or no, I'm sorry, it wasn't Jeffrey. It was Mitch. Um, Working on a on a spherical surface means you have to understand the geometry of those spheres. So you may have to. I wonder if they work in an Unreal Engine or something like that to kind of map a sphere. Be interesting to find out. Maybe someday we'll get somebody on from the sphere and they can talk about the video support that they need to do. Let's go on to the next question. And it's from Jeffrey Powers uh, here on our panel and in Madison, Wisconsin. 
Stream Deck updated their app for more button goodness. You can even set up two instances with 128 buttons. Jeffrey, tell us about the new capabilities. So yeah, yesterday Stream Deck dropped a brand new version of their app. Uh, you do need iOS 15 on it. Uh, so I, I just uh, tried to load it on one of my older iPads and it didn't work. But the best part about it is uh, the the you can uh, get it for a monthly or a yearly fee, but you can pay, I think it's like, it's supposed to be like $80, but I think it's $50 right now. You pay that one-time fee, you're done. It's a lifetime fee. It's awesome. So um, basically, I, my other, my my machine, my studio machine, I have my Stream Deck buttons right here. And another cool part about this is you can change the matrices on there to a full 8 by 8 on there and so when you go back in like that and that all of a sudden look at that you have 64 buttons that you can choose from and so what some people have been doing is they've been using the uh, uh calling up another instance of stream deck on the same ipad so on this side you have 64 buttons on this side you have 64 buttons and uh it works pretty sweet uh, the only problem that I ran into is I, I ran it on my M1 last night, and with uh, the NDI, it would, there was doing some major interference, or maybe it was just taking up a lot of network uh, network uh, bandwidth because all of a sudden all my video just kind of froze up. So I got to figure out what's going on with that. But uh, otherwise, it's it's looking pretty nice. I was controlling this computer from uh, from my phone in the living room. And I was having no problems with that. So uh, iPhone, iPad, uh, and it's just amazing. Once again, $49 and you're done lifetime ability to uh, use it. So I think that's a pretty big game changer when it comes to the Stream Deck. I know a lot of people on our panels just live and die by their Stream Deck. So it's great to see them extending the possibilities uh, for everyone. And it sounds like that was uh, the, the, not a paid upgrade. Jeffrey just rolled it in as extra capability to what you already have. Yeah, yeah. So Excellent. like I said, you can do the monthly fee, but you can also just get the lifetime upgrade and, and you're done. There you go. All right, let's move to the next question. It's from Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado. Jack asked... I am interested in measuring pre-release avalanche acoustic emissions at 30 kilohertz. What would be your recommendation? Modified mic, specific hardware. Can I use Logic Pro or DaVinci Fairlight with this data? Oh, this is a certainly an edge case. I don't know many people who measure avalanches. Mitchell, what do you think? Yeah, I looked at it at first. I thought that was the name of a software or a product, but it's he's talking about an avalanche. Um, I would say you need dynamic range. That's really because it's going to be very quiet and very loud. It's going to be all over the place. So, uh, 32-bit recording is probably what you're uh, what you're looking for. And then a mic that uh, can handle that kind of dynamic range, probably a dynamic mic. I think a condenser would probably uh, be overloaded. So, those would be my uh, choices. And then as far as uh, editing software, I think anything that can handle 32-bit is fine. And certainly Logic Pro and DaVinci Fairlight can do that. Yeah, 32-bit float has tons of dynamic range. Um, in the discussion yesterday, you might want to go back and review some of that because I think some of our microphone experts, and we had a, a, a wide array of them yesterday, were talking about mics that could handle not only that heavy dynamic range. I think uh, George the Tech Whittem, uh 
was talking about something from Earthworks that that you know those are more measurement mics than they are colored for musicians and things like that. But I don't know where you'd have to go. I mean, do you have to go out and leave it somewhere where the avalanche is eminent, which means it would probably be very cold and probably damp and have to put through some harsh conditions. So be pretty specific in terms of the microphone for that. And then uh, are you trying to transmit that signal back home or are you going to just go and swap out cards or something like that over time? For something that far afield, that would be probably a lot of helicopter time. So a lot of things to think about. But it's a really interesting thing, Jack, as you explore this more and maybe find some decisions and some things that are best practices. Please come back and let us know. That'd be really fascinating. Let's go to the next question. From Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Paul wants to know Jensen Huang the CEO and founder of NVIDIA, will be a keynote speaker on Tuesday, 8th of August at SIGGRAPH 2023. Universal Scene Description, OpenUSD developments, and the latest AI-powered solutions are some topics. What do you uh, hope for from NVIDIA? Uh, John Preto, tell us. Yes, everybody on the panel today gets 10,000 shares of NVIDIA stock. Okay, thank you. Uh, let me send you my contact info. Uh, NVIDIA has been on a roll for quite a while. They're one of the, you know, I keep hearing their name over and over again. So I think they're at the top edge of working on these very, 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 very high capacity cards and uh, being able to do this stuff. So I think this will be another place where uh, it'll be really easy to, or really valuable to tune in and see what NVIDIA is thinking right now. I do wish, like everybody else in the industry, that this little grumbly thing between giants would resolve itself and uh, that all of this new technological innovation gets to everybody. But that's maybe a little too much to ask at this point in things. Mitchell, you had another comment? I was just hoping for a reconciliation between uh, NVIDIA and Apple, but I don't think that's ever going to happen. It's kind of what I was yeah, leading towards, but it seems like there, whatever it is, it seems like it's a hard uh, lift to get that to happen. So we'll have to see what where the future brings for that. Let's move on to the next question. And it's coming in from Eric Hers in Hartford, Connecticut. Has anyone tried IzzyCast yet? And how well does it work? We've heard the name over and over again. I think there are a couple of people who come in the panels occasionally who talk about IzzyCast, and they generally have good things to say about it. Um, I do not use it, and I don't know, no one on that panel raised their hand this morning, so you may have just caught us on a day when there's not anybody who has direct experience using this. Um, so unfortunately, Eric, I think we're going to have to take a pass on, on pass along any knowledge. Try an, a different day, uh, maybe on our... Tuesdays or Fridays, those are days that we tend to be um, a little more uh, technical, uh, more IP and technical uh, oriented than we are today. But hopefully that'll help you out. Uh, I do have to make an announcement here, which is, of course, the show is driven by your questions. So that means that if you would like to add more questions, this is a great time to do it. And after you've added your questions, everybody who is watching and listening today has the ability to vote on those questions. And your votes do count because the questions that get the most votes are the ones that we spend the most time discussing. We get to uh, highly voted questions more rapidly than we get to some of the ones that don't get as much um, resonance with the watching audience. And that's an important part of this show because it means that the whatever the most people are the most interested in who are watching us on office hours, they have the largest voice in what we cover and how much time we spend covering it. So please do put your questions in and vote on them. If you have things you're looking for that have just been little niggling problems, you're saying, you know, I, I wish I could figure out how to do X 
toss a question into the office hour system. Somebody will probably be able to help you out on that. Let's go to uh, let's go to the next question. And it's from Douglas Carmichael. Thanks, Douglas. Uh, excuse me, uh, Jeffrey Powers in Madison, Wisconsin. Today, I have a new camera that just came out. What do you think? Oh, Jeffrey, so you're you're reaching us on something new. Let me pin you and see what I can see. Um, you look really good. I'm I'm seeing a lot of detail. You got a lot of visual information there. So yeah, th- there's enough depth of field. I can see the guitars in the back left corner. I'll buy. The- what is it? What is it, Jeffrey? Okay, so what it is is the PTZ Optics Studio Pro. Uh, we saw it at NAB. We saw it at Infocom. This is the, uh, of course, you can't try the camera, so I, this is the picture of the camera right here. Uh, it's basically a box camera. It's not a PTZ camera, although it comes from PTZ Optics, but it does have a uh, 12x digital uh, optical zoom and a 16x uh, digital zoom. Uh, and uh, it also has the uh, feature where there's a switch in the back where you can go and switch it and turn the camera 90 degrees and next thing you know, you've got a vertical camera. I've been seeing a lot of people asking about how to create a vertical studio. And I have a feeling that that's going to be the future of any type of uh, video studio where not only can they go do uh, 16 by nine, but they can do nine by 16. There, there might even be some studios that'll focus only on nine, uh, nine by 16 content, vertical content. And, uh, and and so this is just a, this is a game changer. This is only 1080p. It can be hooked up for USB uh, or HDMI or NDI. So you can use it in a Zoom call. You can then use it for a live stream. You can then use it for whatever. Turn it 90 degrees, flip the switch, and then you're uh, and then you're showing off your your products to other people. So it's it's so far in the last 24 hours, we had a we had a fun time trying to get the color right. A little bit, but I know there's a firmware update uh, that I have to put still on this uh, on this camera, so we'll see how that works. And it also has a tally light system on it, uh, so I can see what's going on uh, if when I'm that camera's being used in uh, regular production. So, so you, it doesn't do a crop of the existing sensor; it actually flips 90 degrees the sensor and gives you the full resolution of it. Yeah, it's using, I think the PTZ Optics is now using all uh, Sony sensors inside their new cameras. So uh, this would probably be the Starvis, not the Starvis 2, uh, but I don't know for sure just yet. And uh, yeah, you would have to flip it because it doesn't have that knowledge to flip the uh, sensor. Interesting. Um, did you have a question? Yeah, Chris? yeah, a couple of questions. Do, do you know what the... Uh, uh, image sensor size is or even size. just the ratio is it square or no I, i'm more wide? interested in the size of it 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 yeah, looks it, like a it, like a two-thirds inch chip is what i'm saying yeah i think it's the same as their g2 uh, uh their ptz optics g2 camera so i think that's that's what it is but i do not know for sure and do you know what your f-stop is set at right now F-stop, yeah, actually, let me call it up. There's, there's a great page here. This is the uh, interface page where I can do all the control here. So uh, let's yeah. see. Uh, we'll go to exposure. Where is it? I know it's I'd, in here somewhere. I'd put it under exposure or image. Image. I might not have it set up in the right 
because I think it's it's set up at auto right now. But I think if I switch this over, it would then tell me what f stop I have. Well, let's it do does it. Not. All right. What kind of what kind of scientists would we be? Well, here we go. That's a manual. That's the. Oh, there you go. F one point eight. So let's go four point Well, that's pee. pretty dark. Yeah, <laughs> need more light. Yeah, and then the shutter speed I can change. Let's change that down to sixty frames a second, and that looks pretty muddy. So we'll go thirty frames. Let's go forty. No, no, no. You do it at sixty and change the other stuff. All right, we'll go sixty. Uh. And then we'll up the gain. And so, so help me out. What does what does the switch do for you? I guess I guess in the display it'll show it. I mean, what's the difference between doing that and just rotating your turning the camera on its side? To are you saying if you flick the switch, you don't if, have to turn the camera on its side? If I flip that switch, then I can go into a vertical video. Without uh, turning the camera on its side? No, no. I have to turn, I have to turn it 90 degrees to uh, get it to work. But yeah, you're right. If I just use like a Wirecast or a, or, or a, uh, or a VMix or something like that, I could turn it in the software. Interesting. Well, thank you for taking us on a tour through it. Looks like an interesting en uh, entry. And, you know, it just says something about the fact that there's so many eyeballs perusing uh, video online and so many of those uh, delivery services are using vertical as their primary means because people are holding their phones vertically. Uh, that it's now become more and more important to be able to work both horizontally and vertically. I remember back in the days, what, you're turning your camera and doing vertical video? What's wrong with you? Nobody does that. Well, now it, it appears that lots of people do that. Do you remember that photo that Alex showed from Africa where he, he called it patient zero of vertical video and the guy had a camcorder with a fold-out screen and he was holding it sideways because the guy was a photographer? Yeah. He could, yeah, funny. Yeah. Well, uh, how many mounting heads do we have from the photography days where there was a setting for the camera horizontally and you'd unplock it and just flip the camera over to shoot that film frame vertically, particularly for portraits, headshots, things like that. Everybody did that. You wanted the maximum resolution, and that was the only way to get it back then. All right, cool. Let's move on to the next question. And uh, we found uh, Douglas's question here. Douglas Carmichael asks, what processor would you need to render and edit at such extreme resolutions as the Sphere? I bet you need an M2 Ultra Max Studio at least. Yeah, if not a few of them. I, I think it would really be fascinating if we can find somebody um, on that technical team. At some point, they're going to want to, I'm sure write articles and publish things in TV technology or some of the some of the big magazines that are technically oriented and take us inside how that was built. Uh, for now, Chris Fenwick, you want to speculate a little? Yeah, you absolutely do not need an M2 Ultra Mac Studio. You could do it with a five-year-old computer. It's just going to go a little slower. <clears throat> you didn't say, can you do it in real time? And we don't know. We don't know. It's, it's, it's going to be that that uh unreal stuff that's that's how they're probably doing that stuff uh maybe we can find out from john how many trillions of dollars they spent on this thing i two trillion dollars so i would suspect they have a lot of hard drive storage and a lot of 
a lot of technical expertise on site. Mitch Hill, you had some thoughts? Yeah, as a side note, the new Mac Pro, uh, the uh, CPU has effectively, I think it's eight afterburner cards on it. So you could do, what is it, 16 8K simultaneous video playback at the same time, just in case you wanted to do that. I remember that MGM or whoever it is, um, Ventures, had to sell properties to finish putting money into this thing when they were building it. They had to sell hotels and things like that. So I would imagine their equipment budget is pretty robust for getting whatever they need to make this thing work. Let's go on to the next question. From Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas, Threads is Instagram's Twitter competitor. It dropped last night and already gives you multi, excuse me, built-in follow and follower bases from your IG account. What are your thoughts on this new social media entry? Uh, Jeffrey Powers, what do you say? Yeah, so, uh, and they, they detailed it this morning. 250 million people are on uh, actively on Twitter, whereas 2 billion people are on Instagram. Now you've just, uh, you've just opened up an app that says, hey, hit this button and all the people that you're following on Instagram are, are going to follow you on this new Threads thing. Uh, so they're, gonna, they're, they're expecting even if there's one-tenth of the amount of people that are going to sign up and use threads that it will match Twitter within probably a month. Personally, I am a very, there's a lot of social networks out there and you, you end up following the exact same person on all the social networks. So you see the exact same picture of somebody's food going across the social networks. I like to keep it separate as possible. So my Twitter, anything on Twitter, I always found was a, for me was enterprise technology. They loved Twitter. So I had all of those accounts on Twitter and some of them just, they just won't go into the meta universe. They hate the meta universe. And this is just another arm of the meta universe. Another billionaire that's trying to make uh, make more money off of everything. As for the app itself, it's thin. It's got, uh, it's got the basics to it, but you can't even edit your, uh, your posts, just like with Twitter, of course. But um, it would be nice to have that edit feature and maybe down the line that'll happen. But right now you can, you can do some posting, you can post your pictures, you can post some GIFs or GIFs, however you want to pronounce it. And, uh, and just use it with like a regular social network. I'm wondering what's going to happen with Instagram. If there's going to be that further merge together where all of a sudden you see that. And then of course, ads haven't even shown up on threads yet. And I have a feeling since Instagram was like every two and then an ad, I have a feeling that's going to be very ad centric uh, in the end. So we'll see what happens in the next six months. But right now, the last 24 hours, it's just all the buzz. Wait, why would you want to edit a post? Isn't everything all of us post on our social media things perfect the first time we write it? I'm, I'm confused here. <laughs> Not. I don't think I've ever posted anything to a social media site that I haven't immediately wanted to go back and fix something that I messed up. Chris Fenwick. Actually, editing posts is much bigger than just a, a typo. You could change the content of what a post said, and after a bunch of people have already liked it, then you accuse them of liking something that they didn't actually like. That's the it's real reason why you shouldn't be yeah. able to. I'll, yeah, so I, I joined Threads. I made one post. I got 81 million likes on it, and then uh, I got banned. So it, it's it's not that good. Yeah, I, I do think a lot of them. I know when I put something on Reddit, I have a period of time, like maybe a minute or two to go in and make corrections without the little this has been edited thing. And after that, it's like 
Okay, I can go back and research the original post. So I get your point, and I think it's well taken, Chris. Let's move on to the next question. From Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado, where might I find information on audio metadata? I'm interested in audio bokeh, audio scene blocking, like Hirasawa does with film. Ooh, those are interesting concepts. Mitch, talk to us about it. Um, I'm a little confused because I don't know how to put the audio with the film, but I can tell you that one of the uh, programs that has a very comprehensive metadata capability is our good old friend Adobe Audition. Uh, They can do cart chunks and uh, uh, every metadata you can think of, and and you can add them as you need them. Yeah, and if you want something that's not tied up to a particular manufacturer, there's a little utility called Media Info, uh, and I've had that on my my desktop for a long time, and you drop any file on it, and it's going to go spelunking for all the metadata it can find. Uh, Also, um, more and more programs understand how important metadata is, and I, there's... And I know in Final Cut, just because that's what I use, and I tend to to dive in there more often, There's it starts with metadata filtered to only what the program thinks are probably the most things that the most people want. But you can go in and ex- extend that. You can choose extended metadata or all metadata and get down into the weeds of so many fields that they expose to you that um, I think if you haven't spent a lot of time looking at how much sidecar information travels with the 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 files that you create i've told this story before on office hours of taking a video that i had shot on my old dslr back maybe 10 years ago now um and some one of my photography friends had told me about putting my name in my camera in the fields in the camera and i eventually did a video edited it threw it up on youtube forgot about it it lasted about three years up there and then somebody needed to change it so i pulled it down and for some reason i tossed it on media info and way down deep in my video was a field that said photographer and my name was in there and i went how did that happen then i realized oh because i built my name into my original camera, that piece of metadata had followed it through the entire production chain, including export, including upload to the web. So it it just woke me up to the fact that metadata is very persistent. And if you don't understand how to manage it, you can run yourself into making maybe some difficulties. Maybe you uh, rented a camera and you didn't pay any attention to that. Well, in that you know, uh, director or photographer field is the person who rented it last from you. And maybe if it comes time to go to court and say, no, this was my content, not yours, maybe that's a problem for you. So it, it just woke me up to the whole idea of how important metadata management is to everybody who's a content creator. Chris Fenwick, you had a thought. Uh, yeah, Bill, you were mentioning uh, tags and the the metadata and stuff. You know, uh, there's a very... Uh, there's a podcast I listen to. I won't talk about it. Uh, and they play many, many audio files and clips. It's a, it's a new show. And they organize and oh, Bobby Brady there. They organize and uh, sort their stuff and find their stuff. Cause they'll quite often they'll play stuff as, you know, from a year or two or 10 ago. And they only use the file name in order to be able to find things. And I used to think that that was perfectly good. If you name something well, you'd be able to find it later. And because of, you know, editing in Final Cut, I now understand the difference between a name and a tag and a keyword. And it's hard to explain to people 
how important that additional metadata is. It's really, you either get it or you don't. And I will say to people, because I'm sure there are people listening, ah, just name it, it'll be fine. You should really look into it because there's enormous benefits of, to using keywords as opposed to just names to be able to find your stuff. Um, and if you don't, if you don't get it, you, you just won't get it. And the, the tech, the guy who runs the show, I wish I could sit him down and shake him and say, you need to start adding tags to your, to your file names and you need, need to have some additional ways to, to find things because as the show gets deeper and deeper into its run, it's been going for, you know, we're approaching 20 years. They have thousands of clips and more and more often you find that I hear the guy saying, ah, oh, I can't find that clip. Yeah. I can't. You I know, agree with you hundred percent. Because yeah. 10 years ago, he could find everything. Five years ago, he was pretty good at finding everything. It gets more and more difficult to find stuff. But if you had ways of filtering and narrowing it down, narrowing down your search, you know, it would work better. Yeah. And my old friend, Phil Hodgetts, who, who he and Greg uh, at Intelligent Assistance, Phil was the guy who explained to me why I needed to start thinking about metadata in whole new ways. And he talks about the classes of metadata. There's camera metadata that comes out. There's generative metadata that is kind of developed by the computer about what there's there's name and date stuff that's auto. But then there's the user metadata that you control putting on there. And I know for the first three or four years, I understood vaguely about these concepts. I wasn't using it with intent. And to your point exactly, Chris, if I had been using it since the beginning, I would have a much more useful ability to instantly go back into my archives of all the video clips and everything else and target specific ones and bring them to, to me instantly. Uh, and boy, that would be so valuable, particularly when I have one of those. I, I know I shot that 10 years ago, and I think I could use a piece of it now. Well, hard to find. Mitch, you had a thought? Yeah, I uh, just uh, continuing the idea of audio metadata and how important it is. I have a, a huge collection of CDs. It's about 10,000 songs that are in the uh, Billboard Hot 100, and I uh, transferred them all as WAV files, because you can now because of the cost of uh, storage. And it took me maybe two months to get them all transferred. But here's the thing. Um, I decided that I was going to go in and install all the metadata that goes to an artist, title, composer, uh, the intro time, the outro time, the tempo. There's uh, so many different things you can put in there. That took me two years. So I have assets now that I can track in all those different ways that were just discussed. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I am interested, Jack, in your term audio bokeh. Uh, you know, we tend to think of that in terms of visual when you have a shallow depth of field uh, and how the background renders. I'm not sure how you're using that in terms of audio. It's a fascinating idea. I'm going to think about it a little, but maybe uh, some of these, I, I, there might be a second hour on just um, how to intelligently manage metadata so that you don't get these long streams of cryptic, you know, 835A underscore Bob underscore something else. And you, you look at it and you go, I know this means something to someone. And they did it this way for a reason, but I can't figure out exactly why they did it that way. So it's the strategies for that might be an interesting second hour. Let's go to the next question, though. From John Fisher in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, the Insta360 link has been out for nearly a year. Any rumblings or rumors of a version two? Jeffrey Powers, do you know? No. 
Okay. Um, Is that, so no, it hasn't I, come out or no, you don't know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so basically I've uh, talked with, uh, I was, I talked with Insta360 at NAV. It's, I talked with them at, in, in extent at Infocom because we wanted to find out about how we can get into the API to use it. Uh, but, uh, and uh, one thing I was talking about was uh, how, what the competition and things like that. Uh, so it's very possible that the people that were sitting at, at those booths didn't have any idea as to what their game plan is for the future. Usually that's what happens with a lot of uh, people so they don't accidentally leak information. Um, but I, you know, I think that, I think that the Insta360 is at this point for general use that it works really well and they just need to tighten up the things like the, the you know, like how it zooms back out when you go from room to room or anything like that. Uh, so I, I, don't, they, I don't think they see in their eyes that it's something that needs to be improved upon just yet because it does 4K, it does move around, you got the AI ability and it's hitting all the boxes for what they put it out for. So does that mean that tomorrow that Insta could come out with a link too? Yeah, absolutely. But right now, I think they they you know they need to make some money off of the uh, off the device before they can start putting out the next version. Okay, hopefully that helps. Let's go to the next question. Next one is for me. Um, how many folks use an Apple TV as their main video manager aggregator? Chris Fenwick, are you in that category? Uh, you know, Mitch, it's interesting. The I know that you can do that, that and, and I don't know how to do it, but I know that uh, I, I have a I have a real Apple TV in my garage. I I don't use it that much. I have. Does your car watch a lot of content? No, I I've never <laughs> I've never once put a car in my garage. Thank you. Ah. Uh, um, I have a software based Apple TV that's built into the Samsung jumbotron in the living room. Uh, and then I use the Apple TV uh, um, app on a couple of my Macs. I cannot get parity between them. I don't try really hard, but I can't really get them all to to act the same way. I see that there is possibility there, and there there are times where I'm like, oh, how does this how does this even know I have a HBO Max account? Uh, there's a whole lot of mystery in it. I long for the days of about a dozen TV channels on an analog cable where you could just, in one commercial break, you could rifle through all the other channels and go, okay, I'm done. I'll keep watching this show. I mean, let's face it, those were the days. Television has gotten way too confusing. Hey, what, what's, what streaming service is that on? I don't know. How do I find it? I'm not sure. Go check IMDb. It's so confusing to keep track of everything. It's mind numbing. Drives me nuts. Mitch, I'm not long. Well, the the first problem I've got is that most TV systems have horrible interfaces for you know traversing different uh, streaming services. They're all bad, every one of them. And I think it's because they don't devote much CPU uh, to uh, to solving that. Apple TV does it really well in the Apple way. So uh, the interesting thing is my friends over at the, the uh, Magnolia over at uh, Best Buy, that's the, the high-end uh, you audio You seem like video. a Magnolia guy. Yeah, you got, if you go in there, you have to wear a suit and tie. So if you go in and ask them, they say, uh, we're going to use Apple TV. We're not going to go to DirecTV or Dish TV or Comcast or 
Spectrum or uh, Verizon. And what's cool about the Apple system, and by the way, you can go in and you can you can log into any of those services, Chris, um, and just enter uh, your ID information. There's a relationship between the Apple TV and the uh, website for the service. So if you wanted a HBO Max, they call it Max now, um, you'll go in and you go to a certain uh, uh, URL and then they'll give you a code and then you bring bring it back into your Apple TV. Yeah, but I can imagine that, my mother doing that. See, that's oh, the yeah, problem. I get that you can do it. It's just insanely complicated. No, it, it's not. It's not, pretty easy. Not for you. Not for you. You're you're a hundred times smarter than the average television viewer. I think that I, I will say that I think that Apple is onto something. What we need is a single interface, and the fact that they're allowing you to watch other uh, services through their device, you know, they're they're onto something. But it's but it it's is it is literally a single interface as an aggregator, and what it does is really cool. Like for example, on my uh, Apple. Uh, iPhone, my old iPhone, this just came up. It's telling me that um, there's a new episode of Star Trek Strange New Worlds coming up uh, that's available right now. I don't get that from uh, Paramount Plus. It just shows up on my Apple See, TV. See, in the old days, in the old days, Sunday night, when there was a new episode of Julia Childs on, somebody would run down the hall in the house, Julia Childs is on! Julia Childs is on! That's how we got notification. And then everybody would run to the family room <laughs> And they'd all watch Julie Childs together. That's how you. That's how TV's supposed to work. That was an right. excellent. Hey, Chris. By the way, I'm sorry, Bill. I, Chris, look. If your mom needs some help, I'd be happy to come over and help her out. <laughs> there you go. I will say. So the the one thing is keeping me from going 100 percent Apple TV is that we have a Spectrum cable account, and my wife wanted something really simple because the daytime she gets busy, but there are some shows that she particularly likes that come on then. So we wanted the DVR that goes with Spectrum, and and that's why we we spend half our lives in those two instances. We're in Apple TV a good little bit, particularly in the evening, because it does have an aggregator approach, and most of ours, and I have about six or seven subscription services. The reason I do that is that I'm placing ads in our regular business practice on things like Hulu and other uh, over-the-top services so I can justify all these subscriptions and I have to check the quality of the advertising for the people that we're placing in those adjacencies. But... Um, so it gets complicated. I agree 100% with Chris that it, sometimes I'm going, which service is this on? And Apple TV is one of the things that does tend to solve that problem uh, for me as much as anything else. Unfortunately, for the for the regular run of the day, I have to be over on our Spectrum app, which is pretty decent, too. It just doesn't have all the content that we want to get to. It's complicated out there. Let's go to the next question. From Douglas Carmichael, I'd like to mount a server and switch in my apartment's equipment closet would rack pulling like the cloud plate be what I'd want, or would a venting setup to get the hot air out of be be the best? It's your media. You should be doing a specific ductwork thing to the top of the building with giant fans on it. I'm being facetious. Jeffrey Powers, help us out. Well, you're not too far off there, Bill, because by putting it in a closet, the closet has absolutely no ventilation to it. And especially if you have a regular solid door, that you close to the closet, you're just circulating hot air upon hot air upon hot air. And it's like, it's like uh, having an open speaker to a microphone. You're going to get, you're going to get feedback. You're going to get, it's going to get so hot that doesn't matter what fan you're running. It's, it's not going to work. Now, if you've got a closet with like a, 
like a vertical blind slat type thing uh, going on where everything can, uh, where air can come in and out from there. That's great. Uh, but uh, if you'll, if you do have a solid door, you're going to have to put some sort of venting in the door or in the wall or anything like that. Now, if you talk to the maintenance people and say, hey, I don't want that door there, or hey, I need a door that actually has some ventilation to it, they're more than willing to help you on there. You run into the next problem of electricity because there's absolutely no electricity that goes into most closets. So then you have to figure out how to run a cord into there. And then your apartment complex may say, hey, we don't want you to do that inside of a closet. So those are the things you're going to run into by trying to do that. And it's just more than just ventilation. It's about actually putting a electric item into the closet itself. So you might want to check with your uh, uh, building manager to make sure that that's even something that you can do in this case. Mitch Hill? Yeah, I have a man cave video system uh, in a closet downstairs next to my big TV. And um, my solution was to get a uh, thermostatically controlled vent fan. It's about yay big. I bought it on Amazon and it I put it into the wall and it vents into the side closet right next to it. Um, and it comes on and off as it needs to. And it's quiet and it's not venting uh, the air or making noise coming out. It's off to the side and it uh, does a pretty good job, except all my brooms and uh, pails in the closet are very warm. <laughs> well, there you go. You could probably raise some orchids in there if you wanted to. That'd be a, a useful thing. I will say that I have a voice booth, and the ventilation system is probably more complex for that than it is for my house in general. Um, and, you know, silent fans, because I have open microphones in there. So people run into this problem all the time. But, yeah, HVAC or just airflow into something where you're keeping a lot of equipment is an important issue. So thanks for bringing it up, Douglas. Appreciate that. Let's go to the next question. Vincent Alvarez from Bellingham, Washington. I need a six-foot cable to go HDMI to DisplayPort for 2K monitors. As it is, it's not bi-directional. I'm finding that they are somewhat hard to find in a known brand. What known brands do you recommend HDMI to DisplayPort? Jeffrey Powers, you have some recommendations? Uh, yeah, um, I don't know of any brands that do that. Uh, what I end up buying is those little... This is basically a display port to HDMI adapter and using that. And I've had absolutely no problem with those that you can get them on Amazon fairly, fairly inexpensive. But uh, no, no, uh, no brands that I can come up with that do those that specific type of cable. Chris Fenwick. I'm curious, Vincent. One does display port support a bi-directional protocol and what information is going both directions. I, 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 this is uh, delving into something I've never even heard of. Yeah, I'm not sure about that, but I think Apple does have a display port to HDMI connection, and I just know that Apple is pretty uh, assiduous about their. Well, this actually, this one is from SyncWire, so there are some standard display port to HDMI solutions out there. Maybe it's time for a good Amazon search. But I, I, I could have sworn that Apple makes one as well. Let me see if this. Well, there we go. Display port. Now that's USB C or Thunderbolt. Anyway, there. Check out the uh, the higher quality things you should be able to find. It. Jeffrey you had another follow up. Yeah, you're talking the mini display port, which is, is also known as Thunderbolt 2. 
And they used to have that in their devices and they don't anymore. Mickey in chat has mentioned that IO gear is a way to go. I, I totally agree with this. He's got a link in uh, in Mukana that you can uh, take a look at. Another company to look at is uh, Anker, A-N-K-E-R. They, uh, they've, they make DisplayPort to HDMI because you can do not only a single, but you can do multiple HDMIs. Uh, that would be going the reverse way, but you just need the single. So that company would definitely make singles as well. Absolutely. Let's go on to the next question. Rajan Shandil from Los Angeles, California. Casey Neistat from, uh, mentioned uh, that he can locate a video clip of anything he has ever filmed easily on his server. What search system could he be using to find moments within 100,000 hours of footage? I've never heard him talk about whatever um, content management system he uses. Uh, I know there are a lot of uh, relational databases or semi-relational databases that have uh, video clip ability inside of them. And then there are content management systems, CMSs, that are designed to do this on an industrial level so that the big operators can find things quickly. Chris Fenwick, do you have any specifics? I do. I'm a huge Casey Neistat fan. I've watched every frame of video he's posted in the last five years. Uh, Casey says that. I promise you he cannot. Because I know how he's... Uh, no, so, let's be clear. People say things in front of cameras all the time that are not true. They might be lying specifically. They might be exaggerating. They might be just speaking in it from an ill-informed Ill standpoint. But people say things that are not true all the time. I will tell you how Casey stores things because he has talked about it at length in the past. He stores things by date. He has folders and or drives by year. He breaks them into months. He breaks them into days. When he was doing a daily vlog, he had everything by day. Casey says he can find anything easily on his server. Easily doesn't necessarily mean fast either. So let's parse what he's actually said. He's just going to go back and go, oh, that was back in 2013. I think it was in August. And now he's okay. down to 30 different folders because he has he had every day by folder. So be careful what you, what you uh, take away from what people say. Yeah. As a, as a longtime FileMaker Pro user, which does allow you to build a system, I will say that the, the fact that you have a system to do it doesn't mean there are human beings entering the information in a functional way that has both automated but also user-generated metadata that helps you find it. Uh, Jeffrey Powers, you had a comment? Yeah, and Chris Fenwick and I are best friends. So... Uh, <laughs> Lie. It's a lie. He's lying. I told you. No, uh, actually, last year, uh, I went to uh, U.S. Uh, Korea Summit in New York City, and I ran into this these guys that actually made a piece of software called PicuRate. And I was just looking it up. And I, what basically what happens is it is a social app where not only can you find out if somebody actually recorded a TikTok on the Brooklyn Bridge, for example, it could actually locate exactly where on the Brooklyn ba Bridge you was, uh, that person was, so you could actually recreate it. But you can also add stuff to your profile when you record video so you know exactly where it is. Plus, uh, most most uh, video has metadata to it and GPS data, so I wouldn't be surprised if if they're pulling that information from there. 
Yeah, the problem I have with geolocation metadata, and it's very powerful, and I love it if I've been to someplace once, but in the case of something like, I, I've tended to go to Comic-Con year after year because I think it's a fabulous photography thing. So I will have 15 years of stuff that the geotag is all the San Diego Convention Center. So finding something in there is every bit as difficult as if I had just a folder with a thousand files in it. And I would have to be able to dig down in and find more refined metadata to enable me to zero in on the place that I took that one shot that I'm looking for. So it's just interesting. Chris Fenwick, you have a quick comment? We're almost at the top of the hour. Yeah, I just wanted to say uh, nothing I said earlier I'm a huge Casey Neistat fan. I would appreciate nothing more than to hang out with the guy uh, for a day and watch him work and talk about work. I will say that recently there was a video, and I'll try and find it, where a guy took a scene out of one Casey Neistat video. A scene. And the scene was he and his wife go get a sandwich and leave the sandwich shop. Okay? That scene was something like, 28 different shots. And it wasn't, it wasn't a video about going to get a sandwich. It was just a passage of time in one of his videos. And he took it apart shot by shot by shot. And he sat with Casey and talked to him about it. It's fascinating. Okay. That takes us to the top of the hour, and I'm very excited. I see in one of my squares on my uh, grid view, my friend, <laughs> Matthew Samiglia. Matthew, it's good to see you back. How are things going? Great, guys. Thank you so much for having me on again. We are very excited to have you here. We've had a really good discussions with Matthew before. As I said, he came uh, to see us back in March and was talking about Altheon.io. The uh, I don't know if it's still classified as a startup because you've been going for a while, but the the system that you are the CEO of, can you, just for those people who might not have seen you the first time you were here, can you give us a little overview of what Altheon does? Yeah, so we, we refer to it often as a production ecosystem. So we take a lot of single purpose apps and blend them all into one UI or one, uh, again, ecosystem, if you will. Um, the, the great thing about the platform is it's leveraging my 20 plus years of professional experience of being in the industry and always having a lack of tools or a lack of one singular system. And there's so much contextual switching when you're creating anything. So I have to use one platform for one thing. I have to use one platform for another and another and another. And by the time you actually get to doing the work that you're trying to do, you're often fatigued. So I really tried to come in and simplify the entire workflow and, and really kind of the whole content creation space space from gathering content out in the field to uh, sending it to an editor that might be remote and then uh, publishing it out to a distribution channel of some sort. So the other thing that I, I had witnessed over my couple decades experience is working with a lot of studios or really large brands. Um, they oftentimes have the uh, financial means, if you will, to go out and spend millions and millions of dollars on content management systems or orchestration tools or uh, spinning up uh, servers in the cloud or even on-prem. Um, but when it comes to the mainstream audience, so anyone from, again, you kind of referring to TikTokers uh, in, the, in the last conversation, you know, to the KC Neistat's the world to, um, you know, other people that are um, building content daily, they don't have the millions of dollars at their disposal that a major studio would have. So Altian really tries to democratize the space in the sense that we're giving away all of these tools at a fraction of the cost. And it's a true SaaS solution. So that means that when a user comes into it, 
they have all the benefits that all of the other users have at the same time. So um, I, I guess when I was first thinking of Altian, before I knew much about it, I just thought content management system. There are a bunch of those around. Can you tell me how you differ from the typical kind of content management system and what the user experience might be when they kind of come into Altian for the first time? Yeah, well, I think that a lot of the other systems, again, um, you know, there's a there's a very popular one that got sold a couple of years ago that I wouldn't even classify as a content management system. They're just a review and approval tool, right? Um, people can't store lots of content on them, but I'm not going to name their name, but a, a lot of people refer us to them. Uh, He's talking uh, about Frame.io people. He's talking about Frame.io. He won't say <laughs> that. Matthew didn't say that. That's, I, that's I don't know what you're talking about. I, I we, we don't speak of that. No, I mean, look, this is a really great solution. And if you look at the decade or the era that it was invented, it served a really great purpose. You can't knock it for that, right? But we now have faster bandwidth. We now have more requirements to be able to store lots of high resolution content. And it just doesn't quite cut it. It's not a content management system. So that's that's one thing. Then how we differ from other systems, all of the guys on this, on this uh, show um, will appreciate this sort of analogy. I call them the Radio Shack model. Uh, which means that you have to go and buy all the different pieces and then put something together. So um, a lot of other content management systems that we've uh, sort of looked at and, and sort of our peers in the industry, if you will, um, it's very cumbersome or you have to have a certain level of technical uh, prowess, if you will, to go and connect a AWS account or a uh, Telestream account or you know something else with the content manager itself. And when you sign up for it, you're not necessarily getting that. With Altion, it's very different. You come in, it's a really streamlined approach. Uh, within a couple seconds, you're actually in the platform and we handle all of the storage needs, all of the transcoding needs, all of the sort of orchestration layers behind the scenes so that the end user who's often just a creative um, doesn't have to focus on the technology side and they can go ahead and get to work. Has that interface design part, how much of your time is spent with your team trying to simplify and make it easy to access for people? Uh, well, I mean, I think it'll never be completely done. Uh, you know, no technology really is. But when it came down to the UI side of things, I mean, we've spent years and we've had multiple, multiple iterations of our own UI where we always get to a point where we say, okay, we are looking at it from a whole. We take in a lot of user data, see how people are using it. And then we say, okay, let's break it and then let's rebuild it so that it's even better. And you know, we're we're on a UI right now that um, is very fluid. It's very streamlined. We actually were with a user last week. Um, and and it was interesting because every time I said, okay, now I'm going to show you the upload tool. She said after this demo that I gave her that every time I would say, now I'm going to show you whatever, her eye immediately drew to somewhere on the screen and then that's where I clicked. So that intuitive nature of things is, is really been um, you know honed in for the entire platform. And we have really incredible designers on our team and product specialists that um, have a lot of experience and um, a lot of experience with with a lot of larger companies. One of our con uh, conversations here on the show just in the last half hour has been about metadata and how important it is, how how it really can make the difference between a fluid system that you can really access the pieces you want at the right time and those that you have to little struggle a little bit through to to find the content. Can you talk a little bit about how you guys approach 
metadata, both from the automated metadata that's it's reading in what you upload and also just how you apply metadata to things to make your search easier in the future? Yeah, I mean, look, we have uh, the basic tagging support, which when I say basic, it's actually very robust because, you know, just being able to, um, you know, it's the sort of old adage, garbage in, garbage out, right? If I want to go and tag all of my content, um, one of my first jobs as as the beginning of my career, this was before really uh, any kind of online tool, um, it was going in and logging tapes and, and making spreadsheets for a reality show that I was working on. And this is, you know, in the early 2000s. And when I when I look at sort of how far we've come, um, the data still sticks, right? The, the data is still the same. And I think that one of the things that we're doing with Altion, especially around AI, is getting into more of the automated metadata tagging, right? Because this only helps the editor. Um, you know, I, I don't think that even with a lot of the generative AI that we're seeing in a lot of the newer platforms or, you know, Firefly, things like that, I still think that the craft is still going to be the craft. We're still going to create. Humans are still going to want to push the limits of, of things. And so when I look around metadata and how we're handling that in our platform, there's a lot of really interesting ways that we're looking at leveraging AI for sure to help people. But as a whole, um, you know, we're taking in all of the file metadata naturally. We're uh, I'm on a SIMPTI committee for lens metadata. So that's a, that's something that's been really um, incredible. I'm not sure if I, I referred to this on the last show, but what's so cool about this is we're, we're, working with all of the camera manufacturers and lens manufacturers out there through SIMPTI and basically going and taking a sidecar file that will allow us to have exposure into where the exposure was setting or the iris settings were or where the focal point was on a lens or what the serial number of a lens was. So when we drop it into a um, uh, sort of VFX platform, uh, you you name the tool, you'll be able to have access to that lens metadata and knowing that you're not going to have to spend a month figuring out where the keyframes need to go in order to figure out where the focal point needs to be. So dragging and dropping a piece of metadata like this into, um, you know, a a VFX shot uh, could potentially save you months of work. As a developer, I imagine that everybody is looking for that talent uh, who can integrate things like that. What, what's your what's your view of the landscape of the industry in terms of human assets and being able to find people who understand this? If you had someone coming up, would you say this is an area they really should take a look at? Well, I, I mean, certainly I think everyone should always be educated as much as possible. I think that that's only going to progress you in your career. So I'm I'm always learning. I think we're always all learning as, as humans, um, especially if you want to sort of perfect your craft over time. Um, one of the things that I will say is that through Altion, we're making it more simple for the end user right? We're making it so that you don't have to hunt and peck for a file uh, or even not know that a file could be there or that functionality could be there. Um, And we're trying to simplify or streamline that whole process. So a lot of how we structure our assets within the platform is an item structure. So within an item structure, we have potentially a sidecar file, some metadata, your proxy file, your original media, because we never want to harm any of that, right? You always need to have that uh, structural integrity of the original shot. Um, So all of that is neatly condensed into one item structure. So again, um, the user has a more simple approach or a fluid approach to seeing one asset, but really behind the scenes, there's many assets packed into it. 
And that brings us to transcoding, which I think is one of your features. Uh, transcoding has always been an issue for those of us. We want to shoot in the highest possible resolution. Uh, it, it is sometimes difficult with today's bandwidth to upload in the highest possible resolution. But eventually, we want people who are uh, having access to our content to be able to work with it in something other than the highest. So can you talk about your transcoding process and what's that feel like? Yeah, it's, it's actually really simple. So anything that's uploaded to the cloud immediately gets transcoded into an H.265 MP4. So that's that's just first and foremost of what we do. And we kind of created a house flavor. So at my old production company, we always had a house flavor because we were working in Avid at the time. So we knew that whenever we uh, ingested footage into the into the company or into the system, it was always sort of made into an MXF file format that we we would all be editing off of. So it was just flattened across the board. Um, we've kind of done a little bit of that approach for people, but taken a lot of the guesswork out of it. So we've really honed in on our compression algorithm so that we can compress the file as much as possible, but not sacrificing enough of the quality of the media. Um, you were referring, Bill, a little bit to upload speeds. So we created something called an accelerator. And the accelerator is a really great tool because it's leveraging Aspera. So anyone who um, is in our platform has the luxury of being able to use Aspera for free to upload their content. And anyone who doesn't know anything about Aspera, I always kind of refer to it as an HOV lane of a highway. So you have the you have your your main you know sort of highway lane, and then all of a sudden you've got the you know the little the speedier HOV lane that you can just whiz past everyone else. And um, by being able to do that, obviously, if you're on a um, decent internet connection, it actually leverages the full bandwidth of that pipe. So uh, we we actually had some of our engineers' wives get really mad at people over COVID while we were testing it because it would basically bring down their entire internet when they were testing it. But hey, this, the files got there really fast. So so I've got to got to hand it to them there. But going back to the transcoding, um, one, one thing that we did last year is we launched uh, support for. Blackmagic Raw. So that was that was our first sort of step into the raw space. So this means that if you're shooting uh, in a uh, B-Raw format, you can upload that to Altion Cloud and it'll automatically transcode it uh, into a MP4 file, which now allows you to go on a lightweight um, you know, sort of machine or a lightweight uh, computer and download a proxy, go ahead and do your whole offline edit. And then later on, uh, you know, your colorist or, or your finishing artist can go and download all of the original raw media and then edit uh, or relink the clips from there. Uh, we're working with Apple closely right now on iPad support for Final Cut Pro. So when you think about leveraging proxies, um, you could do your proper offline edit on your iPad in Final Cut Pro, and then go to your desktop machine and download all your raw material in Final Cut Pro, just send your project file over and boom, everything's relinked. So we're um, we're working on an app right now that's going to be able to uh, take advantage of our functionality in the cloud and offloading a lot of that compute power there. Uh, I see a cool thumbs up there. Yeah. And then, and then, and then the other thing that I will say on top of all of this is um, this summer we will be uh, supporting ProRes raw. So that's another unique feature. So Apple was, gave us a license of ProRes raw um, a few months back. And it is something that we will be bringing into the platform. It was something that we announced at NAB, actually. Um, and then later on this year, we'll be supporting Airy Raw and Red Raw, uh, probably in Q1. So just about every quarter, we're looking to release another Raw format that we support in the cloud. 
Uh, there's so many questions I have, and we're starting to get our questions rolling in here. So I wanted to let the audience know that if you have questions for Matthew, uh, please pop them in there. Um, one of the things that I have a question about, clearly you're talking about that. And I, I remember uh, the USDZ building in, and then how suddenly... How did I know this is where you were going to go? How, yeah. How did, how, and then suddenly uh, we've got this goggle thing coming from Apple, and you're looking down the, down the timeline of history. And uh, so talk to us about this whole kind of 3D Z space possibility for the future? Well, it was miraculous that uh, two days before Apple released the Vision Pro, we suddenly supported uh, USDZ file formats. And, and you know, I, I happened to be in Cupertino during the launch of the Vision Pro. And I, I have to say, anyone who was there, it was actually a really emotional day. Like, it was really spectacular because you're sort of seeing or you're at the forefront of what you know is going to be uh, a huge shift, not only in content creation, but um, the way that we're sort of interacting with our systems or our computers or our everyday worlds around us. So um, that's really cool. But the USDZ file format, what's so unique about it for us is the fact that we're actually uh, able to sort of transcode that file in the cloud. So you upload your file, um, we're able to create, uh, and it's it's still very basic, you know, early days on this, by the way, um, but we wanted to have it out, obviously, for for the timing of things. But when you really think about uh, these types of 3D files, and we will be supporting other files um, in the near future, but having that ability to go ahead and uh, sort of render them in the cloud to be able to see a representation of it, but also going in and being able to comment, right? That's something that's really unique about us. And when we sort of add annotation support uh, into the platform in the near future, that'll be some somewhere where, you know, you can draw a circle around a, you know, an area of a 3D object and, and give that information out to the artist that's working on that file. And um, there was a question that came in earlier about, you know, how we're handling versioning or how we're handling comments. And, you know, that is something that we are taking into effect right now so that a whole team of people can work on a single file and continue to contribute back into that file um, to make it better as the versions progress. Well, that is such a huge part of production now. I mean, once upon a time, we all worked on our little silos in our offices and didn't talk to anybody else. But now we are in the world of distributed comment. And and I know that in everything I do, I have a series of stakeholders that are now kind of watching me as the work progresses and need to make comments, need to be able to touch the project and make sure that it doesn't go off course. Um so I know you've had a robust comment system from the beginning. Can you talk a little bit about how that functionally works? Do people need to be subscribers? Things, all the things people want to know about how to interact with Althea. Well, I think that the, you know, stepping back for a second, the irony of all of this is in December of 2019, we broke ground on creating Altion. Uh, so that's when we really sort of put our stake in the ground and said, yes, um, after you know almost a year of making sure that we beat up the business plan as much as possible and found the right people and the and the developers and so forth, um, we said, look, we're going to have at least a five year uphill battle to convince the world of going remote. We just knew that, uh, and and so this was something that we were willing to take on. We said it's going to take about two years to build the the basic foundational structure of Altion. 
And then all of a sudden in March of 2020, uh, I'm starting to get phone calls from people just saying, hey, I read an article about your company. How do I sign up? I don't see a sign up page or I don't see a, a login area or anything like that. And I'm like, we just came up with the name of the company. I mean, it was like, it was so early days at that point, but but really, you know, we, we for better or for worse, right? It was obviously unfortunate what happened about COVID, but it, it really solidified the fact that the world was progressing in this nature. We were going into a more remote uh, environment. And even when I was running my production company, um, that I exited, you know, years ago, uh, my editors were asking 10 years ago, probably if they could go work in a coffee shop or if they could go work from home and take a hard drive with them. So we already saw some of that happening, but, um, Bill, I think that, you know, to go into how people get in and how they use the commenting features, it's really, you, obviously you have to be a user. So if, to be a user of Altion, it's $12 a month. So the, the friction there isn't too high, you know, maybe one less Starbucks a month and, and you're on Altion and you have the full breadth of all of the features. So we didn't want to make it limited in terms of various tiers. We said, let's just come into this with one simple tier, but give everyone access to everything at that point. So you have access to integrations with Adobe Premiere Pro, with Final Cut Pro, um, with our Aspera application that I was referring to earlier, which is the Altion Accelerator and our iOS apps. So that's been really um, actually a, a really great tool for a lot of content creators that are just shooting on iPhone. They're able to then go ahead and upload their files through the app directly to the cloud and somebody else has access to it. In order to collaborate with people, you do need to be a paid user. So again, $12 a month. But if you're a group, so let's say you're a big production company or an agency or a brand, you can go and sign up for a group account and that, that group or entity, same price, $12 a month per user. And we charge for storage. So it's $25 per month for a terabyte of storage. And that includes all of the transcoding and egress. So um, we're not we're not going to fluctuate your prices. So again, as a as a former business owner of a production company, I needed to know every month what my bills were going to be. I couldn't have a month one you know where I was paying ten thousand dollars for something, and then the next month it was three thousand dollars, and then the following month fifteen thousand dollars. Right? I needed something to be able to predict what I was doing. So with Altion, you really have that luxury or that ability to go in and say, "Hey, look, this is what my budget is for." cloud services this month, and that's all I could spend. But then on top of that, we're actually looking at users and they're gamifying our system. So we've created an archive tier earlier this year where people can now store their, their content on a $6 a month per terabyte classification of storage. So it's sort of like a glacier where it does take around 12 hours to retrieve those files. But if you have it locally on your system or you don't really necessarily need it um, accessible immediately, you can push it off to our archive tier. What's unique about what we did there though, is that you still have access to play the file. So you, you don't have this sort of, um, you know, locked and key system where in order to even view what's in the archive, you have to unarchive it and then realize, hey, that wasn't actually the shot that I wanted. With Altion, you have access to being able to view the item and comment on it and add or, or search metadata. So that was something that we always felt was really important when going into another storage tier. That's a huge process because I can't tell you the number of times I've had a client say, I know we did something five years ago. Can you pull the back up? I have some notes on it. And the fact that there is some form of proxy-ish thing that is 
constantly living that I could just link them to and say, here's the project, go take a look at it, tell me what you want to change, and I can be ready to change it in 24 hours, would it be necessary? That that seems like it's a, a tremendous utility. I would also say, you know, when, when we look to AI, uh, and, you know, because this is obviously the big to- hot topic of, of the day, um, I, I would also say facial recognition is going to be playing such a huge part in content ah, creation. Ah. And don't think of facial recognition as a scary, you know, big brother thing, but I'll give a great example. We had a financial services client for my old production company. And about every month or two, they would come back to us and say, you know, here are pictures of these two or three employees. They no longer work for the firm. Um, make sure that all videos, and there were hundreds of them, no longer have these people in those videos. So I basically had one, it was an annuity for us. I mean, it was like, it was kind of like the the biggest cash cow ever. And we kind of loved it as a client because we had one editor that was basically dedicated to that client because they needed to know who all the faces and what all the shots were. And it took them a week to go through all of the videos and scan them and then replace B-roll shots. If, you know, Bill, you were in the background of a shot, you're still technically part of the shot, right? So I think that being able to leverage facial recognition for something like that, um, that's going to be a huge game changer, I, I feel like, for a lot of content creators to speed up their work. But also, they're going to retain that metadata. It's not something that we're going to have access to in any way. And we want to make sure that security is the highest priority when it comes to leverage the power of AI because I can see a lot of other platforms getting a little out of control on how they're using it or how they're exploiting their users' data. Um, that is something that I always take into concern where we want to make sure that our users feel very comfortable that we don't have any exposure into their data and any of their metadata uh, unless they expressly give consent for us to see it in any possible way. Excellent. Well, we've got questions stacking up. So, Mitch, take us into the first one. Uh, First one from Bobby Rafferty in Florida. What are the teamwork features in Altion IO with USD? Can different teams like texturing and modeling collaborate on the document revisions? Yeah, I mean, so that's that's sort of what I was referring to a little bit ago, but it, it, we will have a more iterative process to how we're handling all files in the platform, not just USDZ files. Uh, USDZ happens to be the first 3D file format that we're rendering in the cloud just so that you can see it. Um, but that process will get better over time. And right now you can upload a single file name it a version, comment on it. And then if you uploaded another version, that's kind of the workflow right now. But we will be getting into more versioning support in the coming months. Great question, right. though. Let's move to the next one. Carl L. Markser from New York wants to know, will Altion IO work with the Atomos Ninja 5 Plus with the Atomos Connect module? So I, I, I can't speak to the exact device uh, too much, but I will say that um, if you're connected to a computer in any fashion, um, you can upload files there uh, in in any way. Um, You know, pretty much every file format or codec uh, is supported within Altion. And and all the so I think that I think that it would yeah I think that we would have to ask more questions around you know what's the what's the file codec that that they're recording in the bit rate the file size things like that what what that workflow would look like so um, it would it would sort of expand on that question a little bit more. Jeffrey Powers had a thought about this. Jeffrey, 
Is that including real time, like a live stream or anything like that? Can we're not accepting any live streams yet. <laughs> that okay. was a, a very, very politically astute comment yet. Anyway, let's move on to the next question. Alton Christensen of New York, New York asks, can Altion replace the functionality of frame for Premiere, Comet Sync to Timeline, etc.? cetera? Um, yeah, why not? I think it, it's, it's, <laughs> I think it can replace a lot more than just frame. Well, I will just say, and this is a personal thing, I've been a frame user for a long time and benefited greatly from it. Um, when they got bought out by Adobe, I, I started using it less and less, not because it didn't work as well, it does, and not because it didn't support Mac, it does. But just because I started to realize that their development process there was going to get pushed more and more toward their own property, which is a completely understandable thing. I don't, I, I'm not surprised at that at all. But when Altheon came on my radar at, uh, I can't remember, it's been about maybe six months ago, I started to think, oh, somebody's redoing this overall concept of a review and a process, and I'm seeing new interesting things inside of it. Let me take a look at this and see if it can be a replacement for me. And I've been playing with it for a while, and I think it absolutely can, and it seems like it's looking farther downstream to me. That's just a personal assessment. And, Chris Fennell? And I would oh, say, I would say too, you know, our rate of, of innovation is pretty extreme. I mean, Bill, you and I have been talking again, probably about six months now. And even what you've probably seen in six months, what we've been able to release is pretty staggering when it comes yeah. to, uh, you know, a startup, let alone a bigger company. Right. And, and I, I've worked with lots of larger brands or larger companies in the past and things just happen at a very slow speed. <laughs> and it just, it's just, you know, glacial. And, and when it comes to a company like mine, the way that we can succeed over time is to continue to innovate. And we have to constantly look at the landscape and be able to be agile or nimble enough to be able to react to what's happening almost in real time. So typically it takes six weeks for us to come up with a concept and then deploy it depending on how um, complex that task is. So when it came to USDZ support, again, something that we were able to pretty much quickly turn around within the, the core spectrum of the team. When we went into building the company initially, we almost purposefully didn't have a great review and approval workflow. And the reason was I didn't want people to compare us to frame. I just didn't want that to happen. So I didn't want somebody to come out of the gate saying, hey, look at you guys. Uh, I, your review and approval tool sucks compared to what frame has. Why would I use you, right? So we purposefully almost uh, you know, tied our hands behind our back, if you will, when it came to the review and approval or the commenting support that is something now that we're focusing on because the company is more mature as a full product suite. So we needed to be able to have all of our uploading mechanisms, all of our transcoding mechanisms, all of our integrations with the various NLEs. So these were all things that we thought were core to the basic functionality or the, the layering of, of the application. And then adding on to there is going to be uh, pretty exciting over the next six months to say the least. Yeah, I have to admit, I've been impressed. You know, we didn't start talking until about six months ago. And to see the number of things you folks have implemented and how fast, it seems like it's light speed compared to the development of most of the things I know. And, you know, the industry is moving that fast. We didn't have these huge tectonic shifts in how people work pre-pandemic and post-pandemic. And now with these new things like Vision and, and USDZ and three-dimension coming into things, these are big 
fundamental shifts in how people can, if they choose, work. And to be ahead of that curve, I think is going to be very powerful in the long run. Uh, Chris Henwick, you had a comment? Yeah, first of all, Matt, thanks for joining us and thanks for doing this. Uh, this is absolutely, we get this, this is a hot seat, and it, and it's, but it's a friendly hot seat. Uh, it's, it's great. It's great to share. I look first forward of, to it. First of all, I've already started, I started an account. I downloaded it from the, on my phone. I'm pushing a bunch of files. I can see, uh, I, I, I guess you were limited to 10 files uploaded at a time and I've, but I see them popping in and processing and uploading. Very cool. Um, I'm either going to be your new best friend. <laughs> or I'm going to be a nightmare. But this is, I'm super excited about this. I think uh, we are the type of company that it sounds like you uh, understand. And I can absolutely see doing this. So a couple of questions. One, the last question, specifically, there was one angle in it about, can you replace frame? You absolutely can. But but specifically, they asked, can you get the comments out of Altion into the timeline like you can with Premiere and Final Cut from so, Frame. Is that something you could do? Yeah, so, so right now you can bring the comments in uh, natively into Premiere or Final Cut um, as actual locators into the frame of video. So we don't have it supporting the timeline just yet. Okay. So, so bear with me there. But we've done some workarounds where, again, I've I've had my exported video that I uploaded to Altion. Somebody commented on it, and as a workaround, I just dragged that, you know, flattened file on top of my timeline, and then I had all my locators there. So that that was my easy workaround in terms of being able to use it um, yeah. in this function. That's totally understandable, and and frankly, it's okay to say we totally know how that feature works. We're totally working on it. There's other ways to do it, like. like I, I I feel bad when people are like, I want to be able to say yes, but I can't say yes yet. <laughs> well, and I think, Chris, you know, one of the things that I really honed in on last time, and I got actually a really outpouring of, of comments from your guys' audience that was was really genuine, and it was really humbling for me. And one of the things that I said to the audience was, we're still a startup, we're still a small company, and if we all work together and we all sort of champion uh, a company like this or other companies, right? It's not just ours. Instead of trying to tear them down right at the beginning, but we foster yeah, that. We, we, absolutely. we build the relationships and hey, give us comments because a lot of times when people give us comments, we really take those to heart. We read everything that comes through and we try to implement that if it makes sense for the business. So I think we're at this stage right now where we really need community support. Right. We really need people like you, Chris, that come in and say, look, I get that you're not supporting it yet. And you probably want to say yes, like you said, but it's something that we will evolve into. And if we I continue totally to if we continue to have users and people supporting the platform, it's only going to help us. It's only going to make the, the system better, which ends up helping everyone across the board. So a couple of specific questions. Uh, let's say I have uh, 10 employees. They all have to have an account. Mm -hmm. If I want the what did you say? It was like uh, like $25 for a terabyte or what, what was the number you said? Yeah, so it's $25 per terabyte. And so what you would do in that... And that shared among all the users, all Correct. the specific users. So I got my 10 people to buck 20 uh, uh, for all those people. I got uh, my $25 for my terabyte. Now, I have dozens of clients that have to like 
peek in, watch a video, comment. Do each of those people have to have an account as well? No, actually. We we have a couple really cool tools that I, I personally love, which I think okay. is, is really neat. So the first is upload. How many times have you hired an audio guy that has all of the recording on their mixer and you need those files right away? Well, it's well, Thursday, so I'm going to say four times this week. Yes. Yeah, yeah, Got yeah. It. So we created something, we sort of internally call it the non-user upload, which means that it's a somebody that needs to upload a file to that specific project, right? So Into we, a folder we, have, or something we, like that. we actually have a political client, which is u- using this to the best that I could imagine. They're going around and knocking on people's doors for a political candidate. And the volunteers in the morning are given a link to this project. Again, these volunteers are not technical people to begin with, right. and they also don't have an Altion account. But right. they're going around and shooting on iPhone various testimonials of people when they're knocking on the door. Every time they shoot another video, they click upload to this link. Their editor is in Premiere. They don't even open up Altion, by the way. They're just in Premiere. They see the workflow extension and boom, all of a sudden a new video pops up and then another video pops up and another video pops up. So they're dragging those files in. So by the time this person is done with a block, They've already started assembling a 30-second testimonial video of people on that block and pushing it out to social media. Again, the the reference of the audio person, right? Upload video or upload audio files from your mixer straight into Altion without having an Altion user account. On the inverse of that, we have a lot of review and approve of these assets or even being able to download these assets as a non-user of Altion. So I don't want my client to see how the sausage is made. I just don't. Uh, so what I would do is I would send them the final link to the video. And if I want them to be able to download that, I'll add the permission that says download. And I could also say, I only want them to download the proxy or download the original. So again, we're, we're able to buffer in some senses what access they have. Now, if you're a freelancer and you're an editor, And let's say your production company has a group account. So everyone within your production company is within the group and they're, they're pooling off of that shared storage, but I'm a freelancer. You want to hire me for the day or for the week to finish out this project. I'm in New York today. Well, you could share just that project with me. I'm using your storage. I don't have to buy extra storage. And all I'm paying is $12 a month to have access to Altion. So it's sort of that key to get in the door. And then once you're in the door, you have access to things when people share it with you. So it's a really great collaborative tool in that sense. All right. I think we have uh, the next question looks to be. And thanks for you, signing Chris. up, by the way. <laughs> uh, so let's go to the next question, Mitch. Surprise. It's from Chris Fenwick in Emeryville, California, here in our panel. Uh, can you discuss the pricing structure for a small company we, of producers and editors, we already did. Do you think we covered it? I think, I think I, we covered that. I'm yeah. pretty sure we covered it. Yeah. <laughs> Fast Let's forward. Just say, punch next. It's affordable. <laughs> okay. There you go. All right. All right. Talalek next question special. from Talalek Lopez Waterman in Brevard, North Carolina. What is your camera to cloud philosophy? Look, I think that right now we're still struggling a little bit in the world of bandwidth. Uh, I I wouldn't even say it's an Altion thing or a technology thing. You know, Teradek is a great system. Um, LiveView is a great system. But you're going to have to have access to some level of cell service or Wi-Fi or Ethernet. Um, And and I I don't quite think that these workflows are 100% there. 
I'm very optimistic though. I would say this is something that we've been focusing on for our company for quite a while. And it kind of goes back to my, my KG. Uh, yes, we will be supporting that earlier when it came to streaming. Um, I, I think that it's absolutely imperative for a company like us to be able to support not only streaming, but chunking to the cloud, right? Something that may be shot on set, uh, and as it's being shot, a proxy is being created, that's being pushed up to the cloud. Um, and and an editor somewhere in the world is able to take that down. And we are looking at ways of figuring out how to support growing files. So right now, I know Final Cut supports it and both Premiere also supports it. Um, we're looking at potentially HLS streaming into uh, the nonlinear edit system. So you never have to download anything. So having that workflow, you could be on a red carpet somewhere shooting a live event and editing something in real time and pushing it out to your social media. So I think there's a lot of use cases where we need to be able to support uh, camera to cloud workflows. And here at Office Hours, obviously, we're spending a lot of our time, particularly in our live event coverage, exploring these new things, using live views from the field. And it's been uh, it's been a learning curve. I mean, we're having great success with it. And I'm very, very proud of the teams that have been covering things like Cinegear and NAB in the beginning stages of this. But I agree with Matthew in terms of the fact that that whole infrastructure isn't completely easy now, no matter what people might tell you. It is coming, and we're obviously going to get there at some point, but I'm not sure we're there yeah, quite yet. And, and one of the things that I need to stress to users, uh, and this is something that actually comes up oddly a lot, uh, which is which is kind of giving me a head scratcher. Um, and, and we're putting in some UI to tell people what their upload speeds are. Um, so we'll get we'll get messages from users just really mad that they can't upload their footage. And we ask them, okay, well, you know, We'd love to to get in. Let's figure out how can we help. What what was going on? What was the root cause? And the best was two weeks ago. We had a user that said, "Well, I, I couldn't upload. I shot all this footage, blah blah blah." And it was he was on the convention center guest network, and I, and I'm like, so there's ten thousand other people on the same network, and you're maybe at you know two megabit per second upload speed at best. Uh, like, I'm surprised that you were able to send the email, quite frankly. Um, so again, it's one of those things that there is a little bit of user experience that we need to uh, address here, which is you have to have pretty decent internet in order to uh, work in, in a cloud environment like this. Absolutely. And we, we saw the same kind of thing. Jeffrey, you had a follow-up? Yeah, you were talking about editing, and you were talking about uh, bringing it up there. I, I'm I'm just kind of curious what's the uh, what's the back end when it comes to things like backup and how many people can actually access the file at a given time. Is it a one to one, or can somebody be coloring while somebody be editing? Yeah, I mean, look, it's 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 scaled in such a way that um, so we're on top of IBM Cloud Storage right now, and it's it's replicated, it's it's scalable, so we can have dozens and dozens of people accessing files, if not thousands of people at the same time, uh, in terms of that one singular file. So that's something that we have we have done a lot of testing on. Um, when it comes to the basic workflows today, you still have to download the file in the end. So if you're coloring something, um, if you're working on a project, you'll you'll still be sort of required to download that file. But a lot of the ways that we're getting around some of this is we're, we're doing um, 
in one of our, I'm, I always sort of contextually have to figure out where, where we are publicly and where we are uh, in the backside. Um, we, we will be having sort of a conform feature, if you will. So if I built an entire edit using proxies, I can then download the conformed media of a given sequence. And again, this is very similar to what we've always done in the old days of tape editing, right? Like I, I would digitize everything at a you know 10 to one or a 15 to one ratio. It looked like garbage, but I would be able to edit an entire TV show off of uh, you know a couple gig hard drive. Uh, and, and now I need to go back at a one to one ratio and redig just that conformed media on a sequence. Right. So that's kind of like we're going we're going back to where we originally were uh, in sort of the old online offline uh, workflows. Nice. All right. And I, and uh, I next... love that. Chris, Chris just keeps showing. We should just keep pulling that up because Chris, is I know just playing with Altion and and loving it. And, and I'm I'm just this is great to see. Yeah, I know we haven't switched to it in a while, but Chris has actually been watching as the stuff that he just threw up to Altheon goes through its processing thing. I'm He's just, watching the process. I'm just trying to figure out how to use it. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> super, uh, Matt, I'm super intrigued because this could solve enormous. So really quick, I, I just want to show you one thing if you, if you want to pull it up really quick for our, our viewers because I talked sure. about it a minute ago. Um, if you go into a project... Okay, so I'm not, I'm I'm not going to monitor you too mode, much. and I don't know what this is. So here's here's your demo project, and here is a project that I just started. It's footage from my iPhone. It's still uploading, and I think while it's uploading, it it gets um, there's certain things it doesn't want to do. Like I was trying to move some files into this folder called Snow Day. So if I go like that, I click actually, on... I, I, you could actually drag that, drag and drop it in. Really? Yeah. Ah, see, I couldn't do that while it was still uploading. Yeah, so uploading it, there are some limitations there just because the file is getting cataloged. Can I shift-click a bunch of these oh. and drag them in? Look at that, 17 files. Boom. All right. So so on the second icon on the, on the bar. This guy? Yep. Recent upload, uh, request upload. Request yep. upload. That's that feature that I was referring to earlier. So if you wanted to send that link to someone on the team, uh, they could get this link and upload a file to this specific project. And again, well, I'd, I'd send so it to Preto, but he'd probably upload something that would get me in trouble. Who should I send a <laughs> link to? Who wants to share their email address? I see. It'd be a Bitcoin promotion or something. Who knows? <laughs> No, it'd be worse than that. And, and note that when you type this in, the whole world is going to see this email. So yeah, you might want so, yeah, to go send, away from send this, it. Send it this. to me. It's geekazine at gmail.com. That's a public email address. Um, so again, like the, the great thing about this tool is you're sending it to somebody else that doesn't have an Altion account. And um, to be able to request this upload from this person and also have an expiration date on that, right? I mean, you're, you're able to go in and say, look, I only want this person to be able to upload to this project for the next week or month or never expire. Am I spelling it right, Jeffrey? I can't see it. Uh, Geekazine. <laughs> yeah, Magazine put in a geek. A-Z-I-N-E at gmail.com. Yep. And is there a password and standard security stuff on this? Yeah. So yeah. two-factor authentication when you when you um, log into Altion, and then also um, when it comes to the the 
sort of when you're sharing links, you could add your own unique password to that asset uh, as you're sharing it out. So, so I did not actually ask a, a set up a password. Jeffrey, are are you a Altion user yet? So I am not, but okay, uh, so when he I he has on the, the link, ability to upload. So I'm going to pin you. Here we go. Talk about real world demos <laughs> on the edge here, but it's cool. Oh my, my, my investors are going to love this because I mean, it's just, it's just great airtime for our, our, our product here. Yeah. Now we are getting toward the top of the hour and I don't want so to, let's neglect. Get into we some have quite a few questions. Yeah, yeah. Let's go into some questions while they're, they're doing their workflow. Perfect. Let's go to the next one, Mitch. Next one from Alton Christensen in New York, New York. My client uses Aspira for deliveries. Can I upload directly to their Aspira account bypassing the HTML upload process? Uh, so when you're uploading to Altion, you would have to upload directly to Altion. Uh, you wouldn't be able to upload to another cloud service provider and then have that port into Altion in any fashion. Um, again, because we are giving away Aspera for free, it's part of our, our uh, deal with IBM. Um, that could potentially benefit you uh, from this perspective of, you know the Aspera workflow, you know how you're doing things, you know the speed in which you're uploading. Uh, so, so that would certainly come into us. As it comes out in the next couple of months, um, we will be supporting multiple clouds and we will be supporting multiple regions around the world. So this was always something that was critical to the core structure of the company that we wanted to be able to have the op most optimal experience for our users so that uh, wherever they are in the world, they can have instant access to Altion. Nice, next question. Next question. By the way, is, I think Chris is showing off that the upload has already been completed uh, from now, Jeffrey. Uh, Jeffrey Jeffrey says it's completed. It's still processing on my end. So, so processing sure means processing means that it's transcoding. What's a transcode? So it's transcoding from whatever to to what? Yeah, mine was a standard MP4 uh, yeah, for so YouTube. It's, it, so it's transcoding an H.265 MP4. So again, we we automatically. Um, create this house flavor format uh, within Altion. And a lot of that was really around optimization. So when you hit play, it plays. Uh, right. But then as a byproduct of that, we always said, well, why not be able to give this out to our users as a proxy? Because we're already storing yeah. this file already. Um, we already We need to have a proxy file no matter what, because obviously that would be the viewable version on the web. Um, but let's let's allow them to download it and use it as as an actual offline uh, file. Uh, sorry, let's let's go back, uh, Mitchell, yeah, to your Yeah, let's questions. get another question in here. From we need to Douglas add another hour to the, to the call today. <laughs> uh, okay, from Douglas Carmichael, does Altion have an API for integration into custom workflows and enterprise systems? Um, call us back in two months. Okay, there you go, Douglas. Next question. And it's from Talalik Lopez Waterman from Brevard, North Carolina. Do you support Blackmagic Raw? We do. Uh, and, and this is uh, this was mentioned a little bit earlier on the call, but um, we are the, as I know it, only cloud transcoder for Blackmagic Raw um, right now. Next question. Alex Oleganowitz from Toronto, Canada. Any chance 2FA will change from SMS to anything else? Yeah, I mean, so we're we're looking at um, sort of the the 
just getting rid of passwords altogether. Um, this is, this has been something that we have, have really looked into a lot. And, um, again, by the end of this year, we're switching off of probably all of our, uh, security that we're on today to make it a lot more robust, uh, but also being able to accept active directories or OAuth or SAML, uh, environments from big corporations or enterprise users, um, this is certainly one of the requirements that they've had uh, as they look at our system. It seems like there's a lot of effort uh, going on. I know I've read a lot about Apple uh, investigating getting rid of some of the traditional two-factor authentication and the rest of that. We have so much biometrics in our devices nowadays. Is that something you guys have on your radar is trying to adapt 100%. to the new? Yeah, yeah, yeah 100%. So hopefully that'll make it easier for all of us and we won't have to dance these jigs that they keep putting us through in terms of how do I access my own work on the internet and so forth. Uh, Mitch, you had a thought about this? I have some clients that are very paranoid. Um, well, I shouldn't say that because I might get in trouble, but I do some pharmaceutical companies and they actually make me air gap uh, my computer when I'm doing the editing. <laughs> what? How do, I, how do I encourage them that uh, there's plenty of encryption going on here and um, that their stuff is not going to get shared indirectly. Well, look, I mean, I, I think that we can't ever, um, uh, you know, put any more requirements on your personal system. Uh, so I think that that's, that's always sort of the, the weakest link, right? Is the end user, how they're using their personal computer or what they've browsed or what they're, they've downloaded onto their system. Um, so I think that that, that in itself is really difficult for us to, um, really have a lot of exposure on. But what I will say is a lot of what we're doing is, uh, uh, thanks for the, thanks for the distraction there, Chris. Um, what I will say is that what a lot of what we're doing is, you know, at rest encryption, um, investigating a lot of new ways to encrypt data, uh, in the cloud and, and also sort of having it so that users don't have to download the files anymore. That's one of the most critical things that we're trying to investigate in, because if you never have the file physically on your device and you're always just referencing it, this allows us to now have a lot more lockdown on those files or those pieces of content. I personally used to do a lot of work with uh, a number of financial services clients and same thing, right? They couldn't allow us to have media that was out there because it could potentially shift a stock price. And so we, we had a lot of systems in place, but also auditing practices, right? I think it's really important. Um, and this is one of the things that we're also uh, going to be delivering soon is the ability to audit who had access to what and where and how. Uh, so I think that that's going to be really critical as we look forward in terms of security. Let's hit our next question. By the way, Chris, yes, those guys. Uh, Alton Christensen in New York, New York, which editing platforms integrate best with Alteon, Resolve, Premiere, and Final Cut Pro? What's your opinion, Matt? Um, look, I, I think that right now uh, we support natively Final Cut Pro and Adobe Premiere Pro. So both of those supported by Altion 100%. Um, we've investigated a lot into those. But uh, as, as Chris is pointing out on his, on his screen right now, DaVinci Resolve is coming soon. So we've been working closely with the team there on how to perfect this. Um, we spent a day together about a month ago, uh, really in, in sort of a locked room on figuring out best practices there. 
And the great thing that we have as a company now is, again, this foundational layer, right? We've built a lot already, and the the overall structure of things doesn't change from a workflow because, uh, you know, you can use any one of these nonlinear edit systems, and the workflow is somewhat the same, right? You're still bringing content in, you're editing it, and then you're putting it back out at its simplest form, right? Obviously, there's a lot going on behind the scenes which in, within the various NLEs, and it's mostly user preference, right? I, I used to be an avid guy. So I know Avid in and out. Um, that's not a system that we are really looking at supporting because uh, quite frankly, they haven't been. Nobody uses as, it. Don't worry about uh, it. Yeah. I mean, and, and and they haven't really been as supportive to us. They don't really want to talk to outside developers where Adobe or uh, Final Cut, the Final Cut team, we have very regular calls. Uh, and if you look at our, our newest hire as of about a month ago, we hired Brian, Brian Meany. Uh, so he was at Apple for 18 years running that team. So uh, when you look at where we are in terms of our product and the people that we're hiring and the people that we're bringing into the spectrum of things, a lot of deep backgrounds there with various companies. Um. Yeah, let's just go to the next question. My mind is boggled by a couple of things. Number one, and I'll get back to it after this, I want to get these questions handled, but workflow extension, things like that, that makes things so convenient inside Final Cut. But let's do the next question first. From Alex Olignowitz from Toronto, Canada, thoughts on Atomos Edit? No comment. <laughs> I was going to say, are you watching the competitors? But yeah, he doesn't want to go there, and that's fine. This is not, uh, yeah. Next question. From Douglas Carmichael, would you ever introduce a locally hostable version of your product, hostable, I meant, version of your product for those with sensitive security needs? Ooh, can somebody get into the API or something? You know, we're talking to a couple companies right now around putting it in their sort of secure server environments. Uh, so I wouldn't say never, um, but but as a core functionality, the premise of Altion is really to be a scalable SaaS solution. So we as a company can't afford to go and have and maintain multiple instances of Altion that's going or floating around um, because we want to have the best possible uh, experience for our end users. So again, there's a there's a little bit of wizardry that has to happen behind the scenes for something like that to work. Um, but I, I would say, I would never say never, but I would say that it's something that um, we would have to use it by a use by use case. There you go. Um, I was interested in workflow extensions. And for those of you who don't use Final Cut, it is a process of taking kind of a subroutine and putting it inside the program itself so you have access to outside material without leaving the interface of the program. I, I think Adobe does the same kind of things in their Premiere system. So, Matt, can you talk about the process of developing those extensions? Well, I, I you know, they both, both companies, Adobe and um, uh, Apple, allow for app developers. And, and one of the things there is that um, when you're an app developer, you're just, you know, somebody out there floating out there. But with Apple, for instance, we had a very unique experience and, and they really, um, they really worked alongside us in terms of building out the Final Cut Pro extension. Um, we had Colleen Pendergast, who was also at Apple for, uh, you know, a dozen years or so. Uh, she really led the charge there on how to build this product out. Um, we had a lot of inner workings or knowledge around um, 
just sort of best practices, if you will. And, and by, by having that degree of partnership there, um, it really allowed us to accelerate the path on how we were building the product, but also being able to support the user base of people that were on Final Cut Pro. Um, Adobe, you know, another example of they have these, these tools out there where people can come in and develop uh, on their platforms. We're unique in the sense that there's a lot of backend to our platform. There's a lot of orchestration that's happening behind the scenes um, that people don't have immediate exposure to, or we don't really care for them to, right? It's something that as a creator, I've said this before, I just want to create. I want to go in and do my thing. I don't really care how things are done behind the scenes as long as it just works. Um, so we wanted to make sure as we were developing these developing these applications that we're testing them constantly. We're, we're always going into understanding what sort of the next version of any NLE is going to be and how we can best support that. Matthew, thank you so much for coming in and bringing us up to date. I think this was a fascinating discussion of just all sorts of topics, even uh, beyond what you do at Altheon. And so thank you very much. I hope we see you again very soon. Um, I have a couple of things to close up with here. Tomorrow, we are doing What Makes a Studio. So the rise of work from home has opened up a lot of things for people. And everybody wants to know, you know, what should I do if I'm converting some space in my home to be able to do uh, either work or to have a telepresence and stuff like that? So that's what we'll be talking about tomorrow. We're continuing our disabilities kind of tour for the summer in our education space, which happens on Saturday morning. So that's something to look forward to. And right now, just thank you, everyone who's been a participant today. Thank you to the producers who have asked all the questions, to the panelists who show up every day to add their expertise to things. Um, and, of course, our amazing back-end crew. And my special thanks to Matthew Semiglia for coming here and helping us kind of get a, a look at the future of some of these shared workflows. Check them out. Is it Altheon.io just on the web? Or where would you send people, Matthew? Yeah, Altheon.io is the best place for people to uh, come and check out what we've got. Absolutely. Excellent day. Thank you, everybody, for being involved. That is the show for today. Remember, After Hours is open after this is uh, finished, and we will all see you tomorrow. Matthew, great job, as always. It's fun to see you again. Thanks, guys. We'll talk soon. Mm -hmm.